Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-424 of the Run Run Live podcast. Now, some of you may be wondering what happened to me last week, or maybe not, but if you were, I was waylaid by an aggressive intersection of life, technology, and some other things that prevented me from putting a show out. It was a cascading series of events that you get sometimes in this squiggly path that we call a life. So first, I had an interview set up with Jamie Beers, who heads up the Zero for Prostate Cancer Foundation that I am running Boston for this year. Oh, so yeah, I got into Boston. I got a waiver number from my club, and I'm running again. Anyhow, Jamie got the flu, not the coronavirus. This was before that before that reared its multifarious ugly heads, and yeah, we had to reschedule. So I, not willing to give up, called our old friend John Vaughn, who is a prostate cancer survivor, and coerced him into recording a last-minute call on the same subject. Probably the finest and most compelling interview ever done by two mere mortals. But something got twiddled sideways in the great bit locker in the sky, and there was no file of the recording to download. And after a week of tete-a-tete with the support guys, there still was no file. And meanwhile, I was in Phoenix for five straight days for a kickoff with my new job, I did over-optimistically bring my recording stuff, but as these things go, was not afforded the chance to create some sort of non-interview-type filler episode. C'est la vie. Such is life. But, even as you mourn the apparent reality that a rigorous and devoted podcaster like myself can't keep on a schedule, all hope is not lost. I rounded up a great talk with Alex for you for today's show. I met Alex on LinkedIn. I saw that she runs an endurance sports magazine, and I had to get her on. I love to understand the intersection of business and endurance, and if it has to do with writing, that's even better. That's like checks all the boxes for me. So I have two asks for you for today. 
The first is that if you have suggestions on people you'd like me to chase down an interview, send them. I don't have a producer, so I have to hunt these people down. <laughs> I have to discover them and hunt them down and arrange the calls uh, on my own. And after 12 years of doing it, I've talked to a lot of people. Uh, my second ask is to contribute to my prostate cancer campaign for Boston. And I'll drop the links into the show notes. Uh, hey, it's very simple. My friends, my close friends are dying from this. And it's important to me. In the first section, I'll talk about long run paces again. In section two, I'll give you my brief understanding of the current OKR wave in organizations. So, how's my training going? Well, actually, quite well. <laughs> you know, you, that's what I like about this, right? You have work, you have your hobbies, you have your running, and if one of them's going well, you're good, right? You get one out of three. So, since I'm planning to not, 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 big important word, not, to hammer Boston this year. My coach has me just running some basic base building runs. And for example, this week I have four easy hour and 20 minute runs, which is about seven and a half miles in the trails with Ollie. So these are awesome. These are not race specific. I can do them in the woods with Ollie. And it makes us both quite happy. I got every one of my workouts in while in Phoenix, and I'm proud of that. And I'm heading to Vegas next week. Huh. And looking forward to doing some early morning running and exploring in the weirdness that is Vegas as well. I received multiple uh, feedbacks that my grizzly bear audio was just a little too realistic in the last episode. So people were startled and they looked around on their runs to make sure they weren't about to be chased down and eaten by a grizzly. So sorry... I was trying to be creative, you know, 12 years and all, been doing this, got to keep it from becoming too routine, too rote. No, I did not suffer from any grisly, grisly attacks, but that was actual audio of a grizzly bear eating a dead caribou in Yellowstone. And there's a grizzly backstory here, and it's not that someone found a way to mic up a dead caribou. It is that if you search for grizzly audio, there's a sort of viral audio of this poor dude and his girlfriend being attacked and eaten by a grizzly in Yellowstone in the early 2000s. And I did not want to listen to it because I don't need that in my head. But apparently they were trying to video the grizzly with the phone. The grizzly attacked, the phone was dropped, and you get a black box narrative of the whole affair. Not my cup of tea. I won't leave you with that in your head. I'll leave you with something a little bit more positive. The days are getting longer up here in New England. It's been a mild January. We don't have much snow. And this means there's enough sun to get on the trails with the dog around 6.30 in the morning now. And it's cold enough for the trails to be firm and fast. And there's nothing like being out in the woods in the silence of a winter's morning. Your feet crunching in the frozen ground. The sun glow highlighting the woods around you. Highlighting the world in an innocent blur. 
and your friend the dog, hiding at the tops of hills to pounce on you, damn near knock you down, and run off laughing like a teenager to find his next ambush spot. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Long run nuances. How you execute your long run really depends on where you're starting from and what you're trying to accomplish. I got a question on my Marathon BQ Facebook group last week when I was traveling that I frankly get a lot. I think I've answered it before, and uh, remember, my answers are based on my experience, and and your mileage may vary. Get it? Mileage may vary. It's probably timely, though, as people are getting ready to mount their spring campaigns or well into their spring marathon plans. And I'm talking primarily about training for a full marathon, although some of the logic may apply to other distances. The question is something around what the pace should be for the long run and or how long should it be. And it really depends on where you are starting from and what you're trying to accomplish. And if I look at it, I generally categorize people into three groups. First is the I just want to be able to cover the distance group. Second is the I've got some experience and I'm trying to get faster group. And the third is I'm an experienced marathon racer and I'm just trying to prepare for my next race. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of these groups. Everybody's walking a different path in life and will have different drivers and different motivators. It's all all good. Everybody will be in different places. The first group, the I just want to go the distance group, that's probably the largest demographic. And I think this is why most of the traditional advice and training plans that you'll find are focused on that group. These traditional training plans are going to tell you that the long run should be a series of increasing distances that top out at a couple of 20 milers and that these should be run at a relatively low effort level. So the pace is typically one to two minutes slower, one to two minutes per mile slower than your regular old running with friends pace. Now, there's a lot of complaining and whining about how these plans aren't very effective for training, but you know what? They accomplish exactly what they're intended to. This category of runners needs to get used to the distance and the time on feet. They need to figure out how to fuel and how to deal with the wall and all the other absurdities that confront you once you get into those high teens of miles. And there's nothing wrong with the just go and run some long miles at an easy pace for practice training plan if your goal is to finish the race. Like I said, these plans typically top out at 20 miles, partly because they figure if you can run 20 miles, you can tough out another six, and partly because there are diminishing returns on your fitness, especially for a road marathon after 20 miles in this group, and the probability of injury starts to go up as well. The second group, the I've run a couple of marathons and I've got some experience and I'm trying to get faster group, is usually who I'm dealing with in the marathon BQ group. By the way, I'm sorry if I'm getting out over my skis here, but uh, Marathon BQ is a book I wrote back in eh, 2014, 2015 about how to qualify for the Boston Marathon. Anyhow, these folks... 
These are folks who have run a handful of races and they got the bug like I did. And then they want to go deeper. In this case, they can probably take a big chunk of time off their marathon, like 20 to 40 minutes, by simply incorporating higher volume and structured speed work into their plan. Higher volume means there's a big improvement. If you can bump your weekly miles up to 50 or 60 miles a week from what these folks are typically running, which is 20 to 30 miles a week. And after that, you get better, but you get diminishing returns. That's a sweet spot for an amateur runner. And there's also a ton of benefit in terms of speed, strength, form, and cadence by focusing on some structured speed and tempo training, especially if you've never done it. But getting back to the long run, for these folks, you know, they really have a choice. The way I built my plan was to leave the long run as a slow base building run, but increase it up a little longer to like 22 or 24 miles. And the reason I did this is that I was loading so much quality work into the week itself that turning the long run into another tempo workout would probably be overkill. And when people complain about this, I tell them to go ahead and treat it as a fast finish run if you're feeling it, meaning do the long, slow run, but if you feel like you still have gas in the tank at the end, close it at race pace or less than race pace. And that's a good simulation of race conditions. And it'll give you an opt-out if you're not feeling it. You're not feeling uh, the, the distance at that point. And in my plan, the long run was to build aerobic fitness and confidence that you can cover that distance. The real benefits in pacing, the big chunks of uh, speed improvement came from the speed work. Now, there's a third group of runners here, which is the I'm an experienced racer and I'm just looking to race again. These, this crew, meaning that you've been doing structured training for a while and there really isn't much incremental improvement opportunity. You're just trying to set yourself up for a good race. And in this case, the long run can pick up some of that slack from the tempo training. Typically for this group, they already have the aerobic base, so they don't really need that time on their feet. They need more race-specific training. For this group, you're going to see a lot of race-like tempo training built into the long run. And you'll have surges and step-ups and long, fast-finish runs to simulate that race day challenge. My advice, really, independent of where you are, is to you know check where you are and what you're trying to accomplish and then fit your training to that. Are you trying to get faster? Are you trying to get to the starting line in race shape? You know, what's your starting aerobic fitness like? What's your experience with racing and structured training like? I would feel free to experiment with versions of the long run and see how they impact your training and your racing. See how you like them. If you feel like you need more base, then run them in a slower heart rate and get the time on your feet. If you feel like you need more race specific, then run them as a long step up or a fast finish run. A typical Long step up for me is you start in easy in zone two, heart rate. Then you step up to a zone three, which is like your casual running with friends uh, effort level. And then you step up again to a high zone three, which is like a, a fairly hard race pace. And then you close in zone four, which is that I'm, I'm hammering it, zone four, zone four, five. So for example, if I have a three-hour run, it might be a third, a third, a third, roughly 
with the last five minutes super hard. And these are really difficult runs. My coach has me do a lot of big step-up runs. And by big, I mean closing that last hour of that run at race pace minus 5 to 10 seconds. So you've got the, both the volume and the tempo, a big volume of tempo. And these are daunting runs after a full week of training. But, you know, play with it. See what works for you and your goals. Or even better, get a coach for a cycle. You know, get a coach for a cycle and learn how they do it. Learn their philosophy. And now for today's featured interview. Alex, we are back. Why don't you give us the the 200 words or less on uh, who you are and what you do and and why you think we're talking? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. That's really loaded. Well, hello. My name is Alex Chitello. I am the owner of Endurance Sports and Fitness Magazine. It's a magazine I've been publishing for 12 years now. Uh, It started out as a blog called Runners Illustrated. It then turned into a publication called Endurance Racing Magazine. And then, oh gosh, probably five years ago, I changed the title to Endurance Sports and Fitness Magazine, and people seem to like that title. I publish on all sorts of endurance sports, even endurance snowshoeing and other types of winter sports. And uh, when I'm not publishing my magazine, I'm usually training for something. And I also have a full-time job as a consultant for FEMA. So that's basically my life in a nutshell. That is an amazing amount of stuff. I'm sure people ask you all the time, how do you fit it all in? Yeah, well... I think the adage is, you know, busy people get things done and I just have a lot of energy and a lot of capacity to do a lot of stuff. But, you know, I don't train for super, super long races. I try to keep that in check. I also have two high school boys. So, you know, I'm, I just try to keep a really steady work-life balance and just make sure that I sign up for races that I know I can do. If they're shorter ones, I just kind of wing those because those are fun. But <laughs> it just requires it just requires a lot of planning, you know. Sounds like you try to keep it to you know an hour, hour and a half a day kind of thing, which is what I do, and that allows you to still perform at a decent level, but not doesn't take over your life. True. Like I said when we were talking before, I'm always interested to see people like yourself who are accomplished professionals and also endurance athletes because I think that's a really interesting intersection. I think there's some, you know, some of that is, some of that is causal. Tell me how, you know, what, what you, your thoughts are around how that being a, you know, a senior professional intersects with being an endurance person and then how that turned into this other pursuit of having a media empire around endurance sports. Yeah. Well, thank you for calling it an empire. (laughs) Um, I, you know what I have found, especially since I, I also try to take time to read books written by other athletes who also have, a, you know, they're either professional athletes that have a profession or they're professionals that are also athletes. I think there's a difference between the two because right. when you're a professional right. athlete, that's what you're doing most of the time. But, you know, last year I did a a long training for crossing the Grand Canyon a couple of times and with a a group of endurance hikers and and runners. And that was a really big undertaking. But the person who ran that endeavor, her name is Robin Benacasa. She's a well-known endurance athlete who's also a firewoman. 
Um, she's actually chief, I think, at, at her station, and she's an unbelievable human being. And she wrote a really good book that kind of encompasses the concept of managing your life and managing your job, and it's all project management. So, you know, if you're a professional who's also an athlete like I am, you know, and I happen to do a lot of project management professionally, I kind of look at them both the same. And I and I like that Robin did the same in her book. There are a lot of other athletes out there that have also written really good books about either long adventure races or just being an, a professional who's an athlete that take the basic tenets of team building, professionalism, compassion, and project management, and talking about how it it parlays into both sides of their lives, if that makes sense. Yeah, so sort of leveraging the methodologies that you learn in a professional life to manage your uh, your endurance sports, right, and, and getting that synergy. Yeah, absolutely. There's a gentleman by the name of Len Forkus who actually lives near me in Reston, Virginia, and he runs not only a business, but a nonprofit. And he did um, a bike across America and or or race across America, Ram, sorry. And, you know, he wrote a book just about that. And, you know, he wrote it from the standpoint of being a professional. So in the opposite way, Robin wrote it from the standpoint of being an athlete who learned the tenets of project management and brought that into her work life. Len wrote it the opposite way as a professional who brought the tenets of project management into managing the road staff and his training and all of those things. And it was both, both of these books are so fascinating because the techniques that both of them use are very similar, but it's just the yeah. way that they come at it is different. Yeah. Yeah, that's that is interesting. And I and you you can't help but have some bleed over between, you know, what you do in life and taking the lessons in both directions. The other thing that that fascinates me here is you started out like uh, like a lot of us did in the early 2000s writing a blog, right? But then you had the uh, sort of the uh, the audacity and the free will to turn that into something more than a blog into into a magazine in the teeth of what they were calling the, you know, sort of the digital apocalypse of of magazines at the time, right? Well, somebody, it's funny because when I started blogging, uh, I really was doing it because at the time I was in the publishing business and I was doing, I was publishing a lot of traditional print magazines and blogging had just gotten started, right? So in that time frame, yeah. so I thought, well, I'm going to create a blog. And after a while, I decided to call it something. So I started off like a lot of people who write online do. They cover a product. They talk about the shoes they wear. I didn't really want to talk about myself so much, but I did a little bit, you know, but I really just wanted to focus on how does Gatorade taste and how do these ASIC shoes fit and all that stuff. And then later on, I noticed that people were reading the blog and contacting me about it, which I was tickled pink. I didn't think anyone would actually read this stuff. And eventually I had other folks emailing me saying, hey, I have this product. Do you mind testing it and writing about it? So then I started to do that a little bit. Finally, I also started to write about, you know, I, re- I, I basically wrote about any distance up until the marathon. And full disclosure, and I've told everyone this story many times, I never really thought about running any distance past the marathon ever in my life. I never even really gave it much thought. The whole concept of endurance racing and endurance running and ultra running was not even in my conscious thinking. And I got contacted by a guy named Andrew Bowen, and I always give him credit for my launching this magazine, but he is a gentleman from Australia and he wrote me and he said, Hey, you know, do you write about any distances beyond the marathon? And I said, well, what are we talking about here? And he said, well, I'm going to run this 
1400 kilometer race event that I'm sponsoring to raise money and awareness for a children's hospital. And I thought, God, like, why would you ever run that far? (laughs) That was my first thought, you know, and he, he attempted it. He actually never completed it, but he did raise a lot of money for the cause. But between him and then other people started finding me like really big name people like Lisa Smith Batchen and Marshall Ulrich and folks like this and Dean Karnassus and said, Hey, you're, you're, you know, we don't have a lot of people writing about what we do. Do you mind doing some writing on it? And I thought, wow, okay. You know, and so it kind of blossomed from there. And now these are people that are, especially Lisa, who's very near and dear to my heart. And, you know, these are the old like eco challenge people, you know, back, back in the day, back then. So, you know, I don't know, long story short. Yes, I did parlay the writing into more of a publication. I did print it for a while. And like you mentioned, doing a, a, a publication in print is a big undertaking. Most of my readers, meaning like over 90% of the people that I give this magazine to, just said, please just keep it online. We really don't want it in print anyway. So that was easy for me to then stop that effort. So I, I stopped printing a couple of years ago, and the magazine is now totally just an online effort. Does it fund itself or is it a passion project or how does how does that all work? Because that, you know, again, there's a lot of a lot of competition in that space and they're all sort of scrambling after the same same dollars. Right. Yeah, I'm very lucky in that I have a couple of people who have been my longtime advertisers who have helped supported the magazine um, but because, and this is frankly, it is a love project. It's not my main source of income, but it's something that's garnered a lot of popularity over the years. And um, I'm still looking for ways to even grow it in the digital space. In fact, I was doing some research on Instagram right before um, I, I called you this afternoon, just looking for more and better rate ways to create more visibility for the people who advertise with me. So I do that combined with, I have some very dedicated writers that have been writing for me for years. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I've just kind of kept it afloat because there's a passion there. Uh, not exactly. so much a bottom line per se. I, I get similar question, you know, why, why would you do this? And it's, it's not like I had a choice, right? I had to write that down. Right. And I think a lot of your <laughs> sort of endurance endurance sports type books, you know, like the Ram guy or, or any of these crazy things, those are books that, that force themselves to be written, right? The, the writers really didn't have a choice. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I'm so glad that they did. And, you know, again, Len Forkus is a really busy professional, but yet I see him halfway around the world, you know, climbing Kilimanjaro. So, you know, some of these people just have an unbelievable amount of of energy and stamina and are are able to go and do these things so it's unbelievable and they're all raising i i will say over the last five or six years a lot of the writing that i do or you know stories that i publish are about people that are raising awareness through racing so that is a big deal now i would say yeah they're trying to change the world you know, I've talked to some folks over the last few, you know, probably the last year or so where that's become a lot more predominant, where uh, they're trying to change the world beyond just the, hey, I'm raising money for this, you know, cancer program in this race. Uh, you're starting to get the big brands who are outdoors brands are leaning into that as well. So it's a bit of a flywheel, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
I've read so many books by endurance athletes, you know, because I get them sent to me and everything. And I would have to say that, you know, just right off the the top, probably 80% of them are, are not super well written. You know, their their heart's in it, but the, uh, you know, they needed uh, some stronger ghostwriting or editing. So, yeah, you know, I, I always wondered because the experience itself is so compelling, right? You've got a story. I'll just make something up. You know, I'll use your example. Somebody running the Grand Canyon, right? It's a great story, right? Because it's got all the elements of the story. you got your hero's journey. You know, it's a great story. But they do a bad job of just a, a bad job of storytelling in that. Why do you think that is? Oh, gosh, that's a really loaded question. Because it's because it's uh, so compelling, you know, is it just because I always think it's because a lot of that stuff's going on inside, right? If you look at this guy finishing the 100-mile race, you know, they look like death. But what's going on inside over those 24 hours is a big story, right? And and that's super hard to get out onto paper or onto film. Yeah, well, I think, you know, you need to have a really good editor who can help pull that story from you, you know, um, and I think it just depends on the on the athlete. I have found that folks who are really, really well seasoned, like Robin Benacasa, like I mentioned, she's able to write a good story because she has suffered the agony of defeat and has also won great things because she was able to overcome a lot of difficulty. She was able to humble herself. She was able to accept that she could come in last. So she was able to not just talk about kind of the success of getting through what she was doing, but she talked a lot about the failures. And again, she brought in the good tenants of project management, teamwork, um, and, and a whole host of other characters, which is exactly what Len did in his book. Um, there are a couple of writers who have written good stories about their one singular race, but usually there's another element to it. So, you know, they're able to to say, well, you know, I happen to be an expert in, some, in the mental aspects of running. So let me, part, you know, bring that experience into what I was, um, into the things that I was doing and, and how I was preparing for my race and how I was getting through my race and then how I overcame some problems that I have. I don't know if everyone does that really well. So to your point, I've picked up some books, started reading them and put them down because I haven't been brought, I haven't really been brought under their skin, if you know what I mean, in terms of their experience. Yeah, I feel exactly. that, you know, these books really have to, you have to really almost like get into their soul in order to really feel exactly. what that experience was. Yeah, exactly. And I think some of it might be because they have non-endurance athlete editors. So you can see where somebody told them, no, no, you have to put training plans in. You know, it's like, no, that's the last thing I want to see in this book. I, like you, I want to feel the suffering. I want to be in the shoes, right? I want to, I want to, I want to be in that journey with you. Um, so do you think it's, you know, some of these people are led astray by, you know, editors who just don't know what endurance sports is about, what the gems are? You know, I'm not really sure. It might be that they try to get the book out too fast because they wanted to capture the essence of what they were talking about before the experience left them. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I could have very easily, after I did the Grand Canyon, sit down and try to write a story or a book about it. And I realized that there really wasn't anything there. Like, I, for me, well, and because I'm a writer, I had, I did a lot of so what, (laughs) so what, (laughs) you know, who cares, you know, um, because it's not like I discover, I mean, I discovered a lot of cool things about myself, but you have to stop and ask yourself, well, A, will anybody care? And B, will anyone learn from it? And I really realized that I had nothing to offer in that space. And so I didn't even write a 
I didn't even write a follow-up of my experience because the, <laughs> but the, and well, you know what, you want to know why there were a couple of reasons. First of all, I was really busy. Second of all, I didn't find my story that compelling. So at least I'm able to see that, you know, I thought it was great that I did it. And I'm a, you know, zero, zero, one percent of the population has gone both ways across the Grand Canyon and yay. But there was nothing earth shattering other than the fact that I, I realized that I could stomach a lot of different foods at once when I was really, really hungry. And that's not enough to write a story about or write a book about. Uh, yeah. You know. So what what do you think makes a, a really good story? You know, some of these ones that we that we remember, you know, like the the Taramaru story, you know, some of these. What what makes a good story? What what makes it uh, what makes it click with people, with a broader audience? You know, like I mentioned, I think you need to bring people in. You have to become your own protagonist and antagonist in your story. If you're writing about yourself, I think people want to see you stripped to the bone in these stories. Mm. Like you know, mm. if you run a 5K and stub your toe and you learn something about your shoes, that's great. But you know, am I going to come away saying to myself, "Wow, you know"? From that experience, uh, you know, I want to either A, am inspired to do something like that, or B, maybe not so inspired, but I really understand the story and I love what they're saying. And I've had similar experiences, you know, maybe that person was, you know, because a lot of people also, too, have overcome a lot of stuff. I don't know about you, but I think there have been folks that have had substance abuse issues or other things like that that they've overcome that actually allowed them or enables them or is the reason why they are endurance athletes today. You're just, you're replacing one, you know, kind of addictive behavior with, I don't want to call, you know, another, I I guess I'll say it. Yeah. And I I don't want to say that's all that's out there, but yeah, I've interviewed a couple dozen of them. Respectful about that. Yeah, exactly. And you know, and I get it and I love that they, I, you know what, I'd rather have, I think that's, so much better for them and for everyone around them. They're doing that instead of, you know, having a substance abuse issue or being in an abusive relationship or whatever. I I think that it's a really great parallel. Yeah. Yeah. No, as long as they, like you said, they can go deep. I've, I've read a couple of those that have, that have sort of failed because they just didn't, they tried to sort of skim over the, the low bits, you know, the other thing just in that process that I kind of, it probably goes back to your editing comments, which is some of the prose is just dreadful and boring, which I hate that. <laughs> you know, we all can't be Murakami, but, you know, make an effort. Well, exactly. And I was going to say there is an endurance athlete out there. His name is Gary Dudney. And uh, he wrote for me for many, many years. And he writes on kind of the mindfulness of running. And I have to say that his two books, The Tao of Running and The Mindful Runner, the, well, f- first they're short books. And so that's always helpful, but they're a fast, easy read that talk about the mental aspects of running. He leverages his own experience, but he also talks about what you need to be looking for if you're going to be training your mind. Um, And he does it in a very non-boring, non-academic way where you're just kind of like reading a story and saying, oh, I kind of get that. I don't think he's an endurance athlete that many people know of. Uh, He goes out there and runs 100 milers like a lot of other people do. He's not someone who's shouting up and down and saying, look at at me. And he's kind of quiet in in his approach. But I really like his work. And he's not, he just doesn't show off. I know him. Yeah, I know, I know Gary. <laughs> I, I, uh, yeah, I've yeah. read his books. I actually, um, funny you should say that because I sent his book um, to a couple of people who were sort of uh, mindfulness 
sort of people, right? Actually, I sent his yeah. book, a copy of his book, Power of Running, to my two pacers from my 100-miler. So, uh, yeah. So there you go. It's full circle. Because I met Gary at the expo uh, for that, for the Burning River. Yeah, uh, no there kidding. you go. Everybody knows well, everybody in this sport, right? It's six degrees for the most of, part, uh, yes. Yeah, a separation. And there may not even be six so, degrees. Yeah, there might only be three. <laughs> what are your favorite three, you know, one to three articles that have come across your desk, either your own or others, in the last 12 years, Alex, and why? Oh, gosh. So there's a woman I interviewed, and she had a very, very interesting story. Her name is Carrie. She's an endurance athlete. And her story is just so odd, which is why it sticks out in my mind. But she, so first of all, she's got eight kids. And so what's interesting Mm. about Carrie having eight kids is that A, very few people have eight kids. And B, very few women who have eight kids. I don't even know how, you, you know, I only have two, but just to think about trying to train and become an athlete uh, and, and, um, and kind of be out there in, with sports as an undertaking. But the most interesting part of her story is not even that. It's that she ended up getting caught up in a situation where she, I guess she was, I, it's been a while since I wrote the story, but the, the short of it is she got caught up in a situation where she was kind of one of those, like uh, those Mormon societies where women were downplayed and downcast and in many cases abused. And she got kind of brought into this lifestyle. And when she started running and training, she was like in her Mormon clothes, like she didn't even have any running clothes. And eventually through the years, Somehow she had a supportive husband at the time and they got out of that lifestyle and then she's become a very prolific endurance athlete. But her story stands out in my mind just because she had to overcome a lot just to run. So I'll just throw that one out there just because it's just an interesting start into her endurance lifestyle, which she is very involved in now. Yeah, that's a good story, right? That's a that's a good hero's journey right there. Right. So, yeah, that's a good story. That's interesting. That's what I look for, too, is I look for things that are interesting, right? Because if it's interesting to you, it's probably interesting to somebody else. As I, as I, as I thank you for your uh, generous uh, gift of time and move you towards the, the exit, what have you learned from all this over the last dozen years? What, what, what's your takeaway? What can people learn from, you, from this? I think there's a lot of desire out there for people to really dig deep. And I think a lot of people want to run endurance races or get into ultra running because it's one of the few sports that strips you of everything. It, you, you know, it takes you away from your phone. It takes you away from your family. And a lot of times you're running in a remote place and it's really kind of like you're one with God type of thing. And it's a very, yeah, in many cases, a singular sport and can be very spiritual and uplifting and, and just a huge accomplishment. The other thing that I've learned is that it's, always unbelievable to me just how many different types of products that are now available. Like over the last 12 years, if you were to, you know, lay out the things that you may have eaten or worn 12 years ago and then lay out your pile now, you're going to find a lot more variety, a lot more companies. And I just find that unbelievable. Like every day I'm hearing about a new supplement or a new you know, when should you eat versus when you shouldn't eat. And the other thing too, is I'm also finding that the cycle of like diets and how people eat is very interesting to me. I've, I have, and I would say that a couple of my other top three stories, which also go into what I've learned is I'm always fascinated by vegan runners 
because yeah. I, I think it's a fabulous lifestyle. It's one that I have not adopted, but it is something I have such high respect for and that, you know, there are a lot of people out there now that have adopted these lifestyles and they're really doing well with it. And I wish that more of us would. I just think it's better for us, better for the planet, better for, you know, better for everybody. I just think it just, just one of those things that I've learned that the vegan diet does a lot of good things. I guess so who's I your, who's your favorite, who's your favorite uh, vegan athlete that you've dealt with? I'll, I'll give him a call and, and have a chat with him. <laughs> There's actually a couple of women and I will send you their names. One of them in particular, whose name is escaping me right now. She is unbelievable. She f- discovered she had brain cancer and mm. went from eating Burger King to literally kale. And she said it was awful, but it saved her life because the the lifestyle change shrunk the tumor to a point where they could operate. And now she has run over 200 marathons and she's absolutely unbelievable. And I'll be happy to share her name with her, you afterwards. But she's, she's one of those ones where not only her story, but her lifestyle really impacted me in many ways. Yeah. See, now that's another good story, right? So, I, so I think if I, I, I think back, <laughs> yeah, I think back all the interesting people I've talked to over the last twelve years. There was this one guy who had, um, I, when he was a, a child, he had his foot run over um, in a car accident, and it mm-hmm. bothered him his whole life. And he didn't want to quit running. It got to the point, you know, in his thirties or forties, where he, he was going to have to stop running. So he had his own foot amputated. So he could keep running. Oh. Wow. Isn't that, isn't that a, that's an amazing story? Yeah. That is pretty amazing. So. That is pretty amazing. Anyhow, so I'll let you get back to your life. Thank you for uh, cutting out the time for me today. I appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time today. All right. Great chat. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. On OKRs, Objectives and Key Results, the trend of objectives and key results in current organizations. So I'm currently finishing up a book by John Doerr called Measure What Matters and learning about the current OKR wave. So what are OKRs and what's the history? How are OKRs different or the same as traditional organizational goal setting? What are the potential challenges or pitfalls of OKRs? Now, if you don't know John Doerr, he's quite well known in the venture capital world as a successful investor and also as a coach and sage to venture-funded startups. If you're in Silicon Valley, having a conversation about anything startup or venture-related, his name or one of his concepts for success is going to come up. So this book on measuring what matters encapsulates what he considers one of the major methodologies for success in any organization. He is the Johnny Appleseed of OKRs. All of his invested startups are trained in using OKRs to focus their energy on what matters. OKRs, when done correctly as part of a corporate culture, can lead a startup to success or lead a lagging company through a turnaround. And if you've ever worked in an organization that seems to be drifting along with no true north, you'll appreciate 
the focusing impact of OKRs. So what is the history of OKRs? OKRs come from a man named Andy Grove at Intel, and Andy was an executive with unparalleled energy, intellect, and innovative spirit. He looked at the challenges that Intel was facing and knew that the current way to manage the company towards its goals was not working, was not going to get him there. So he decided that in order to survive and thrive, Intel needed something new. And through energetic experimentation and iteration, building on earlier works of Drucker and others, he created the OKR approach that drove the incredible success of Intel through the 80s and the 90s. As it turns out, John Doerr was one of Andy's students in this awakening and took the concepts of OKRs into his practice as a venture capitalist. So, what's an OKR? OKR stands for Objective and Key Results, and they force the organization from top to the bottom to declare an objective and then define how they're going to measure progress towards that objective. This is a transparent and collaborative process where everyone knows what everybody else is working on and everyone has a role in setting the objectives at all levels. So how are OKRs different than traditional goal-setting exercise, and how are they the same? Well, your traditional businesses in the 20th century were based on an army model of management. The folks at the top set the goals, then those goals cascaded down in whatever form through the layers of the management structure. The employees at the bottom set their goals at the start of the year. The annual reviews happened at the end of the year. It wasn't a great process for anyone involved and did not produce the results that the leaders were looking for. Anyone who has had to suffer through annual reviews as a manager or as an employee knows what a waste of time and effort they are. What is different is that the OKR process forces an alignment at all levels with the purpose of the organization. The objectives set are measurable, focused, and few, and this forces the organization to agree on what the most important things are and how you will know if you're getting there. The other major difference is that OKRs are not set and forget, like traditional goal-setting exercises. They have a much shorter review cycle with many touch points along the way to recalibrate. They are used every day for guidance. And this allows organizations to attack focused challenges with smaller efforts, smaller sprints, and then reevaluate quickly based on the measurable learning and pivot to better approaches. And unlike traditional goal-setting exercises, these are not lip service by the leadership team. They are management-led and embedded into the culture. The leadership is transparent to what the organization is trying to achieve. If you run into an employee of an OKR-led company and ask them what the objective of the organization is, they can tell you straight away, and then they'll tell you how they are tied into that. The transparency creates alignment and purpose throughout the organization, and a purpose-driven workforce will accomplish amazing things. The OKRs give the employees their why. The key results define the measurable what, and the employees are set free to deliver the how. And when done right, 
OKRs create a focused, aligned, and purpose-driven organization. So let's circle back to those amazing things that these organizations are capable of. Because once the OKR engine is turned on and functioning, creating that focus, that alignment, that purpose, then the organization is ready to embrace moonshots. Yeah, moonshots. A moonshot references how John Fitzgerald Kennedy, as president of the United States, set a giant goal to put a man on the moon by a certain date. It was a big objective, and outside the scope of anything ever done, it was also very clear and very measurable. It enabled the teams across the U.S. and NASA to focus and align behind that purpose. In an organization, moonshots take the form of a stretch goal, like doubling the company's revenue, something that seems aggressive and audacious. Sort of like a BAG, right? Big, hairy-ass goal. This becomes something that the whole company can rally around, and the existing OKR process gives the organization the ability to look at the moonshot and credibly ask, okay, what do we have to do to get there? Then iterate quickly to fundamentally pivot capabilities to make it happen. When done right, the OKR organization is very flexible, resilient, and agile in its performance. The transparency of objectives at all levels creates lateral collaborations, i.e. breaking down the silos, to get things done. And OKRs bring sacred cows to the surface quickly. Those companies like Intel and the rest of the case studies in this book that have embraced Doors OKR mantra are all very successful, especially with startups, because they tend to hit the wall when they scale to a point where the founders run out of bandwidth. OKRs enable that scaling by institutionalizing what matters. It's, it's no doubt that an OKR-driven company is successful. But how about the employees? Well, certainly any of us would rather be part of a purpose-driven, transparent company that is doing well. But somewhere in the back of my mind, as I was reading this, a little voice was asking, isn't this a way to wring more productivity out of the workers. And clearly, this was Andy Grove's starting premise. Dorr states this early on. How do you get more production out of an organization? And one could argue that an aligned organization, simply by being aligned, creates more output with the same amount or less effort because everybody is pulling in the same direction. And this is true. But looking at the flywheel nature of an OKR-driven company, the speed of that treadmill is going to be cranked up with each subsequent iteration and each moonshot. And in the case studies, you see how the key employees worked long hours and moved mountains to make the moonshot. And I wonder if this isn't a methodology that plays on our natural tendency to lose ourselves in a worthy cause larger than ourselves. So that's my take on OKRs so far. I think it is a very effective alternative to traditional management techniques and traditional goal setting. Clearly, OKRs can transform a company's culture for the better and enable the achievement of big things. Like all management methods, OKRs are sure to run their course in the next few decades and see spectacular successes and maybe some failures. But it's one of those things that you need to be aware of in today's organizations. 
Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, we have transversed the frozen ground to the end of another Run Run Live podcast episode. Episode 4-424, Lie Sweating and Spent in the Hoarfrost. Nothing new or novel in my training or racing to report. I am plunking away at building mileage for Boston. I canceled that race on Martha's Vineyard, uh, the pacing that I had signed up for. I canceled it so I can focus on requalifying in June. So I have signed up for the Tunnel Light Marathon in Oregon, and I'm going to make a, a long weekend of it with my wife, is my plan. Haven't scheduled any travel yet. But it's in the middle of June up in Oregon. It's a rail trail with a consistent, slightly downhill course. And I'm going to make that my A race. I'm not going to run any other races except, of course, for the Groton 10K, which I think it's our 28th, 29th running of the 10K. My 28th, 29th running of the 10K. It's the last Sunday in April. Come on up and join us in Groton, Massachusetts, my hometown. If you folks need anything at all, just feel free to reach out to me. I like hearing from folks. It's okay. <laughs> you can find my, yeah, yeah, I'm easy to find on social media. Ollie the Collie is doing just fine. He's eight months old now. He's a stud of an athlete. We'll finish this week with somewhere around 30 miles in the trails. No muss, no fuss. Doesn't even make him tired. Uh, he's still incredibly unruly. <laughs> He's very vocal, which Buddy was not. Ollie will spontaneously treat you to a loud, close-range, ear-splitting bark if you want your attention. He's still very, very mouthy. Nothing he likes better than have your hand in his mouth with his big teeth, uh, like a chew toy, and he does not listen well, and he's very jumpy. He loves to give you a flying, wet French kiss when you're not suspecting, but we're working on all that stuff. He's only eight months old. It's hard to believe. He's such a beast. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we were out running in the woods, and we came upon a large flock of wild turkeys, probably 20 or 30 wild turkeys out in the woods. And Ollie was beside himself with joy. He chased those birds hither and thither. Some flew away like turkeys do. They can't really fly, but they sort of go short distances. Some ran away clucking. And eventually he came back to rejoin me, all tuckered out and quite happy with himself. And just now he's come into my office, heard me talking to you to see me, and put his head, his big head, in my lap for a hug. When I was out in Phoenix last week, I was thinking about the absurdity of having such a city in the middle of the desert. You know, before the modern era, you could not do such a thing at scale. One of my mornings... When I was out running, I was running along a canal, which I think they call an aqueduct, but it was it was heavily fenced in, and I did not attempt to breach the barbed wire. I've been known to jump fences, but it looked like they really, really, really didn't want you inside this fence. Turns out, I was told later, that the whole thing is alarmed with motion sensors, and if you get inside the fence, the authorities rush out to apprehend you. So, good thing I didn't jump that fence. That might have been a good running adventure story, though, huh? The Puebloans who lived here before, they got by, but not at this scale. You know, cities need a reason to exist. They need something to be near, right? And ancient desert cities were on an oasis or near a source of water or a trade route. 
You just don't put a city in the middle of a desert like Vegas or Phoenix for no reason. You don't do that. There was a recent discovery of a large city in Egypt from a couple thousand years ago. It was a royal city. And they were asking the same question. Why was this city here in the middle of the desert, not near anything? And they were able to use modern techniques like LIDAR and other airborne surveys to figure it out. Turns out a branch of the Nile used to run by the city. And that branch of the Nile silted up. So the residents picked up the whole city and moved it to the next branch of the Nile some hundred miles away. And we'll see what happens when Phoenix or Vegas runs out of water. You know, challenges like this bring out the innovative uh, nature of humans, so I'm sure it'll be okay. And I will see you out there. Note, to continue my music series, I give you track two after the outro today from Brian Sheff, The Rock Opera, by the Nays. Links in the show notes. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry.